Welcome to Live at the Ballpark. On this episode, you'll hear the story of a newspaper columnist who covers a legendary team on a day-to-day basis. And what happens when he has to pivot when the daily routine is thrown upside down by the surprise arrival of a future Hall of Famer? You don't want to show up to the ballpark not knowing what you could write that day. That puts you in a bad spot. But you have an idea, but you also have to know when to pivot. And I, I think if there's a whale that swims by, you've got to go chase it. You don't come to the ballpark expecting to write a column on how the manager's going to handle this bullpen this year and Albert Pujols shows up and you go, well, no, I'm going to write. I told my editors I'm going to write about the bullpen. No, you call your editors and say I'm going to write about Albert freaking Pujols. Welcome to Life at the Ballpark, sharing stories from players, managers, and coaches, writers, and broadcasters about their lives around baseball, from the Sandlots to the big league ballparks. Life at the Ballpark is sponsored by Golden Rule Entertainment. Have you ever wanted to own a part of a baseball team? Well, now you can. Visit goldenruleentertainment.com to get in on the game. Hi, I'm John Frost, and my guest today is Ben Fredrickson columnist for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and stltoday.com, who covers the St. Louis Cardinals. Thanks, Ben Fred, for sharing about your life at the ballpark. I'm excited to be back. I feel like this is our uh, this is my spring training ritual, man. I get down here, you're the first voice I hear. It's like spring training has sprung, and then we tend to catch up toward the end, so it's uh, it's become a great routine of my spring. So um, you've had a great spring. John, I mean, you get to introduce Albert Pujols oh, man. to the Cardinals fans for the first time back in the uniform. How was that? I want to ask you. Oh, How that was, was that? why you turned the tables on me. <laughs> it was, it awesome. was a thrill. Yeah. It was a real thrill. It really was. First of all, I was surprised by the news. Sure. Because he you know, came down like at midnight, right. I think is when everybody found out about it. But the fact that he would be here that day. And then, you know, they were, Brian Bartow was sending me the information yeah. and saying, hey, we want to introduce him. And I, I said, this is really, really a thrill. And part of it, and we've talked about this before, is his first spring training, 2001, was my first spring training. No kidding. So I got to announce his first at bat and his first home run, and now I get to do this. How about that? And you had Mark McGuire, you know, punching Tony LaRusso in the ribs, telling him, you got to bring this guy with us. And here he is back. And I know Mark McGuire is going to be at opening day in St. Louis, so it is pretty cool. I mean, you, you can go home again, but uh, it was not lost on me that you got to make that introduction. So well, that was that was pretty cool to hear. It was cool to be here to see, and I know that's got to be up there on the, oh, it's on the be. list of things you've got a chance yeah, to do. But absolutely. you know, this has been uh, the spring of Albert, right? But uh, it's a fascinating team for that reason. Um, you've got Albert, you've got Yadi, you've got Adam Wainwright, and you've got this kind of uh, play the hits vibe of you know oldies but goodies. And I think the the challenge for this team is going to be to prove that this season is about more than celebrating those memories. And these guys are the first to tell you, look, it's not about celebrating the end of the road for us. It's about trying to win one final time together. And I think that's going to be the story of the spring is, yeah, the Cardinals will have that enthusiasm, that energy from the fans because of these guys, but can they capitalize on it? If you're going to bring these guys back together, go out and do everything you can to send them out the right way. Well, we've had three spring trainings in a row now that have been very weird. Yeah, And you and I have had a conversation each of those times two years ago was when it got shut down, and we were together on that day, March 12th. We'll never forget it. I remember we were sitting there going, why are they playing this game? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Final Four, March Madness had been canceled. Yeah. Everybody was gone, and here we were. And then, of course, last year, 
was we were all in plexiglass and mask and they wouldn't even let us roam around. I remember the conversation you and I had wasn't even in person. Right. We did it over the phone because right. we were quarantined. Yep. And we couldn't even uh, communicate through the little sliding window here in the press box. It was <laughs> locked up. It was apocalyptic uh, scene. But yeah, this has been so much better. Um, getting a chance to get back in the clubhouse and have face-to-face conversations with players getting to to be able to get a feel for Oliver Marmol now that he's in the big chair, but just having conversations that are not always on a Zoom call. Not that everything is, you know, on the record, off the record, whatever, just being able to talk like humans versus talk like you're, you don't know who's watching, um, I, I think has been huge for reporting. Um, you're able to get back to, you know, revisiting those those relationships, those professional relationships you've built. And, you know, I had talked to Nolan Arenado, but I hadn't talked to him face-to-face in person really since I've been down here, other than occasionally on the field. So it's just different when you can actually get back to doing the job the right way. And, you know, I think it's led to better reporting. It's led to, to better storytelling. I think hopefully, you know, the teams will have a better maybe appreciation of, of that role, that side of things. I think the players do. Um, I've had players say it's good to have you guys back. Now, some of them are saying, man, I wish you guys would still be on the Zooms. Easier to blow off, right? Yeah. But I do think there are players who appreciate having us around more than they did before they realized that it's not always a given. So I'm really thankful that the teams and the league allowed that. I'm thankful for the writers and the, the journalists who advocated for that. Thankful for the players' union that understands it's important. Um, and I think hopefully our work from this spring, everybody's collectively shows why it's valuable. But it certainly has felt more normal, and it's been way more fun. I mean, it's fun to watch the games, but it's fun to interact and go on the backfields and see things that are happening and get that scene from the, the clubhouse and be able to get a better per- sense of guys' personalities. I think it's way more entertaining. It makes the job more fun, and it's been a reminder of why I like to do this as opposed to just sitting in the press box watching from afar. You know, the chronology of all of this has been interesting, too, for the offseason, because the storylines, we don't even remember the first storylines, which is, of course, Mike Schilt. Oh, yeah. Being replaced. The manager change. The manager change. <laughs> a manager who, who got votes for manager of the year, who led the team on a 17-game winning streak. That's so distant history now. Then, of course, the lockout, yeah. which threw everything off. And, you know, the, the nerve center of the lockout and the negotiations was right here. No doubt. This is where the owners and the players were meeting at late night. And you were probably one of the guys who were standing out on the street <laughs> looking, lo- through the looking through the gates. fence. Yeah, that was not me. Derek Gould was down here, though, um, you know, and, and watching the back and forth offers go back and forth during the lockout. And, and yeah, it was surreal to see Roger Dean be the, the epicenter of, of those negotiations. Yeah. And then you get to camp. And all of a sudden, it's Pujols Palooza. And it's like, oh, by the way, Mike Schilt talks to USA Today. Oh, by the way, he's still really mad about being fired. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, remember remember Mike Schilt. And I don't mean that in a, in a crass way. But, yeah, the rush out of the lockout and all of the storylines, the building of this roster, the late, obvious, newsworthy addition of Albert Pujols, it did certainly turn the page. Um, and then there's maybe some belief that maybe Schilt was trying to turn it back a little bit with that interview. So I, I think that... That is a thing that is still kind of hovering over this team. Not the decision to move on from Mike Schilt, but the pressure on the front office is growing. And they can't change the manager anymore. They've changed him twice. You know, Mike Matheny didn't work. They got rid of him. Mike Schilt didn't work, couldn't get along with the front office, got rid of him. And now Ali Marmol has kind of been groomed as they think he's this very forward-thinking, modern manager to lead the Cardinals in the new age direction of baseball. And if... If he can do that, it's going to look smart. And if they give him the right moves to help him win bigger, it'll look smart. But if he doesn't, then the question becomes, okay, it's not the manager. 
Um, it's it's the people who are giving the manager the roster, and I, I think that vibe is still there. Um, it would have been much more there if it would have gone from firing a manager to starting in the next season without any of those other storylines in between, lockout, Pujols, um, all that stuff. But it's still there. There's a there's a real spotlight, I, I think, on John Mosellock on his front office. I think we've seen some signs that they see that and they're responding to it. Look at the addition of Corey Dickerson. Look at the addition of Albert Pujols. It helps nostalgia with Albert, and he's going to move tickets. He's probably already made his contract money back based off the tickets they've sold. But he's also very effective against left-handed pitching. Corey Dickerson was the kind of guy that Mike Schultz would have loved to have for his bench, never got. Look at Palante making the, the roster, not on the 40-man. So they made a, an anti-kind um, of convenience move to put him on because Marmol wanted him. So I do think they are really saying, okay, we're going to get try to maximize this roster. I think we're seeing some signs of them showing a little more urgency, and I think it's due. One more thing about Albert Pujols. It's such a, it's such a huge story. In my memory, I was trying to remember a player, potential Hall of Fame player, going back to his original team to end his career. And I, I can think of Tom Seaver with the Mets. I could think of Ken Griffey Jr. Ken Griffey Jr., even a better example. Ricky Henderson, I think, finished his career with the A's. I mean, this is big stuff. It is. And now the question, and that, that you look at that list and look at who actually won. Yeah. And it wasn't just, oh, a bad team doing something to more or less be a PR move to sell tickets. And the list gets even shorter. Um, you know, there are guys who did it, uh, the list is short, who actually did it on competitive teams, and that's what they're insisting that this is about. So I hope they're right. I hope that that, that comes true, and I think it's all about how they use them. They're going to start them on opening day, and they should. Okay, you know, I'll, I'll crunch the numbers as much as anybody, but uh, 22 consecutive opening days when you're only trailing Pete Rose and you're going to tie Hank Aaron and Yaz, that's a big deal. So you don't get in the way of that. But after that, then it becomes, hey, are you going to help us win today in the lineup? And there will be right-handed, right-handed pitchers Albert helps them win against, but there's also going to be – that's going to be a test of Ali Marmol. Is, is he going to be able to say, okay, Dickerson's the guy today. Pujol seems to get this. He's open to this role, though, this being a part-time DH. He wants to help these young guys. He seems to be on board, and I think that was the one question you had to ha- answer. Is he open to being a part-time guy? Also had the wounds healed enough for the Cardinals to say, okay, we want this to end the right way, and they had. And I think the thing that made that happen among the many things, well, the biggest one was him coming back in 19 with the Angels, and that just felt like closure. It felt like, in some ways, like a family reunion when there had been estrangement and everybody comes together, and it felt just like all of this scar tissue was was not healed, but it became, let's remember the good times. And I think he came as close to saying then that he made a mistake. I don't think he'll ever say that out of respect to the Angels, but I think he that's how he feels. I think the Cardinals maybe wish things would have gone down differently, but they also feel in some ways justified by the fact that he didn't end up living up to that contract, and now all of that is baggage out the window. And the other thing I wondered about, John, was would Adam Wainwright and Yadier Molina feel at all like they like it was raining on their parade? They, they stayed. They made decisions to stay. Now, no one came and offered them a contract like the Angels did with Albert, so maybe they wouldn't have. But I did wonder, you know, you had to make sure they were on board with it. Of course, Yachty is. It's his big brother. Adam said, "Go, let's go get him. Adam didn't say, hey, convince me why we should. Adam said, I, I'm going to go lobby for this guy to come back because he thinks Albert can help him win. And Adam wants desperately to go out with the championship. And Adam is saying, for the record, that he's not dead set on retiring. I mean, <laughs> John Mozilla keeps trying to retire this guy. And Adam's saying, hold on a second. If I keep pitching like I did last season, I might want to do it. 
one more year. And if he has two more years like he did last year, then he might be making a Cooperstown case himself along with um, Pujols and Yachty. So, and I've heard you make the case for he's been the best pitcher in baseball since the pandemic. It's not even close. Yeah. I mean, it's the numbers are there. Innings pitch, game started, quality starts. I've said this time and time again, and I don't, I'm, people are probably sick of me saying it, but when baseball has been at its most unpredictable, Adam Wainwright has been at his most reliable. That's huge. It's huge for this team. It's going to be huge for them this season. I think Adam had uh, 20 quality starts last year. They have nine in their rotation in Major League Baseball from last season that are that are after him. You know, Matt's had or ten. I'm sorry, Matt's had nine, and I think uh, I think somebody else had one. So Adam Wainwright is the opening day starter because he's the longest tendered member of the staff and he's a Cardinals legend, but he's also, it's by performance and he needs to be that guy because if he's not, this rotation could get a lack of innings in a hurry. Um, They're going to need those four guys, you know, Adam, Michaelis, they need Steven Matz and they need Dakota Hudson. They need those guys to carry the weight because their fifth starter is going to be non-conventional. It's going to be Jordan Hicks one day. It's going to be, you know, Jake Woodford the other. It might be Drew Verhagen one day. And there might go two, three, four, five innings, um, depending on who it is. They're 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 not going to lean on one guy for that spot. I'm not convinced. So they're going to need those other four to be good. And the most important guy, the most reliable guy they have the most trust in is Adam Wainwright. I want to ask you sort of an inside the actor's studio question okay. about, about your craft. <laughs> and then I know you're going to need to run because the game is starting. But it's fascinating to me because you, you write so much during spring training. It's almost like the postseason, right? You're just, overexposed. You're just the churning, kind of, you're, you're just you're, churning you're, stuff out. <laughs> the right? word is overexposed. And, and, <laughs> Let me and, help you out. <laughs> and the idea of, of, you know, where do you get your ideas? Because as a columnist, you're not just writing about balls and strikes. You're doing all of these other things. So the, this you, you mentioned earlier about the, uh, the idea that uh, you're back on the field now. You're talking to these guys. That's got to aid your ability to find different stories and things to write about. I think you the way I've tried to go about it is you have an idea when you show up. You don't want to show up to the ballpark not knowing what you could write that day. That puts you in a bad spot. But you have an idea, but you also have to know when to pivot. And I, I think if there's a whale that swims by, you got to go chase it. Um, you don't come to the ballpark expecting to write a column on how the manager is going to handle his bullpen this year. And Albert Pujols shows up and you go, well, no, I'm going to write. I told my editors I'm going to write about the bullpen. No, you call your editors and say, I'm going to write about Albert freaking Pujols. Now, that's an easy example. Some days it's, okay, should I pivot? Should I not? But one of the things that I was taught early on and I've tried to live by is if you're going to go home that day and say, here's what I saw at the ballpark today. And that's the first comment to your wife or to your buddy when you're on the phone, then that's probably what you should be writing about. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes we overthink it a little bit. You know, sometimes the, the column you should write is the thing you're talking about with guys on the way to the ballpark or waiting for an interview for the manager to show up. If if the people around this team are talking about it, that's usually a pretty good idea. Hey, I, I need to have an opinion on that. I should write what I think about that. Um, you know, if everyone's going, who's going to be the fifth starter? and you're sitting there writing about the lineup, then maybe pivot. I think that's a big thing. And then also use your, I think, not getting caught up in the routine of baseball. There are still things that happen that we are used to seeing, but sometimes we need to remember that not everybody else is used to it. And I think that, you know, you and I had talked earlier in camp about the thing I wrote about Yadier Molina. 
So for people who are not familiar with the intricacies of spring training, every year there's a guy who shows up, or two guys usually, three, four, whoever, to show up to, to get guys new suits if they want to tailor. Um, you know, he'll measure guys, and they have their suits in time for the start of the season for road trips. Got teams dressed up on the road, and it's nothing unusual. It's like seeing you know a trainer walk through. It's no big deal to see one. This year, you know, I noticed, and, and some of the others did, that there are a lot of guys getting sized up for suits. A lot of guys who wouldn't normally buy suits. Now, if it's Paul Goldschmidt or Adam Wainwright, okay, you know, these guys have a lot of, uh, they've earned a lot of money to spend on suits, and good for them. But when the clubhouse guys start coming out and, you know, the the, uh, the coaching staff, which usually, no offense to them, not always the sharpest dressers, <laughs> and you go, this, this is a lot of guys getting suits, and this isn't like men's warehouse here. These are expensive suits. So you go, what's going on? Oh, well, come to find out that Yadier Molina, as part of his going away, president has said, hey, I want to get every clubhouse staffer and every coach, some even on the minor league side, custom suits made as kind of a going away thank you gift. That to me is a story. Uh, and that to me is the definition of a spring training story. That's that if you are down here for three weeks, which I am, and you don't write that story, then I'm not doing my job. Now, I had to bend out Yachty's arm to get get him to let me write about it because he would prefer that no one knew about it. But, you know, and he gave me like, what, I think three lines of a quote. He didn't want to talk about it, but he was okay with me talking to other people about it. So I interviewed everybody else, and everybody was so touched by it. Everybody thought it was such a just a Yachty moment where through his actions he shows what he thinks about these guys versus through his words and uh and these are a memory for him that's going to last for these guys will last forever so that's an example of sometimes you see something and go there's a story there and, and you got to follow your instincts and it's a story you've never heard before i had never heard of i never now, had either you'll see guys go hey i'm gonna get the rook a couple rookies a suit or you guys have lots especially in the cardinals scott Rowland got adam wainwright his first custom suit uh, i think same for for skip so there's great stories there it's kind of part of the cardinals tradition of things but no one had ever heard of a player saying i'm going to do all the coaches and including the clubhouse guys you know the guys who who pack up the the clubhouse and send the team on the road the guys who pick up the towels off the floor i mean that was uh it was a very yachty thing um he appreciates those guys and he might never write them that heartfelt sappy thank you card but but they'll be seeing it hanging in their closet you know that's great well, this is always such a kick for me to sit down this spring and have this conversation. I have a blast, man. I hope we're doing it for uh, many years. So you've been doing it for what, 50? This is my, well, this is my 23rd I hope, this I, I hope to be doing it as long as, as you've been doing it, man. But it's always fun to see you keep up the great work and uh, always a pleasure to join you. We'll do it again next year. Thanks, Ben. You bet. Tune in each week for a new episode. I hope you'll subscribe and share with your friends. Life at the Ballpark is sponsored by Golden Rule Entertainment. If you ever wanted to own a part of a baseball team, well, now you can. Visit goldenruleentertainment.com to get into the game. Life at the Ballpark is produced by Jim Governale. Project manager is Paul Adams. I'm John Frost, sharing stories of Life at the Ballpark.